0: You're part of a moment of history, the first to receive this vaccine. How does that feel?
1: It hasn't sunk in yet.
2: (laughs) This was the moment that gave the world hope when the 91 year old grandmother Margaret Keenan was the first Brit to be vaccinated. So how did the UK become one of the world leaders in vaccine production, rollout and take up?
1: The UK started rolling out its first doses of the Pfizer vaccine. It's being called V-Day in Britain and it's hoped the vaccine will mark the beginning of the end in the war against the virus. Well, it's just, uh, it's been, you know, it's been such a tough year for so many people and there's William Shakespeare putting it simply for everybody that, you know, we can get on with our lives.
2: The rollout of the vaccine has been a game-changer in the fight against COVID-19 in the UK and globally. Britain had a head start after our regulators cut unnecessary red tape, the government backed a number of vaccine candidates, several of which paid off, and the University of Oxford developed a homegrown vaccine with AstraZeneca. What was that first year like for those in the middle of the action? For this special podcast from The Spectator, we've spoken to some of those from the worlds of politics and science who were at the forefront of the UK's fight against COVID-19. I'm Kate Andrews, The Spectator's economics editor, and this podcast is kindly sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Jamie Njoko Goodwin was a special advisor to Matt Hancock, the then health secretary. I started by asking him when, in the Department of Health, they started to take the new virus coming out of China seriously.
3: I think the first time I heard about this was in a meeting where we were looking basically towards the next few months. One of the things the Department for Health always does around that time, that early January, is look at what the state of the NHS is like, look at what the winter flu crisis is looking like, and try and work out if there are any patterns that could be looking at what it's going to be like for the next few months and then into the next winter. And I remember some officials being quite optimistic and saying, actually, it's not been as bad as we thought it might be. We might have gotten away with it this year. And then someone mentioned, oh, but there's this, there's this thing in Wuhan that we sort of should probably want to keep an eye on. From there, it's sort of escalating and escalating and escalating. But I think the thing that it's... Quite hard to comprehend now is just how much uncertainty and how much confusion there really was in those early days, early weeks, particularly when you're trying to get information out out of China to work out exactly what's happening, exactly how serious it was. Um, And so I think that first month, at least, it was very much a question of sort of, is COVID going to get here? How transmissible is it? How fatal is it? and having a huge margin of error for these sorts of things. I remember one meeting where we were basically told we thought the sort of case fatality rate was anything between 0.5% and 4%. And so having to make judgments and decisions when the margin of error was that big was obviously incredibly, incredibly difficult.
2: And from memory, Jamie, the COBRA meetings did start up to address COVID-19 in those winter months. This was long before we had any kind of official lockdown policy. But it was your minister at the time, Matt Hancock, who is the former health secretary, who was often being sent to chair those, not the prime minister. When would you say that the whole government, not just the health department, woke up to what was about to happen?
3: So obviously you'd expect your... Health Secretary, who is much close to these issues, and it's sort of, his job is to be doing as much as he possibly can and escalating it to the Prime Minister and up above when needing to. Obviously, he was pretty engaged in it from the start. Across government at that time, actually, the priority was, um, was Brexit the uh, Brexit day on the 31st of January I think it was and it was sort of a macabre irony that the first case that actually got to the UK was on that was on that sort of day where government I think wanted to be focusing on delivering Brexit, getting Brexit across the line when a lot of what we were doing was thinking actually there's there's something really serious coming and us wanted to try and be engaging government and be taking it seriously I think it's not just true of this pandemic, I think obviously there's lots of evidence of previous worries about pandemics, whether it be sort of things like SARS or bird flu, when health departments and other governments were incredibly worried and other bits of government were taking it a little bit less seriously. But I think it became really clear to the rest of government towards the very end of January, early February, that this was something that was, um, that was pretty significant.
2: In those very early days, even going back to late January, early February, did you and your colleagues expect that a vaccine would come within the year?
3: So, when we first started asking about it, we were told that, well, firstly, there'd be no vaccine for a coronavirus, and the idea of kind of creating one would take about ten years. Then, when people really sort of like focused and said, right, if we get the whole system really behind it, probably do it in eighteen months. And then the sort of the push in that was, can we get it by Christmas? Mm-hmm. But also look at the question of actually, what is it you mean that we can kind of get in 18 months? Cause what we didn't want to do is get to a situation. And I think that the phrase we kept using was in a year's time, what will you wish we'd been doing today? So, sort of, what you didn't want to do is something in eighteen months' time. Get a vaccine and say, right, so we've got it. It's going to take another six months to develop, or another six months to sort of distribute. You say, actually, what are the sort of ways we can be doing to speed that up? Can we be producing it, manufacturing it as it's still going through some of the development to make sure that when it does get the green light, we can ship it off straight away? So, look at some of those sorts of procedures. But the last thing I'd probably just add is the importance of understanding the virus from the very start and and actually doing as much as you can to understand what is actually going on. The big problem we had with COVID was that it was a novel virus. I think if we'd have known everything we know about COVID now, if we'd have known that in January 2020, I think our response would have been completely different. If you look at things around sort of asymptomatic transmission, the incubation period, um, even things like the fatality rate, there was so much confusion at the time. Asymptomatic transmission is probably the biggest one. A lot of the problem with the discharge of care homes was that at that at that point. Well, one, you don't want to be leaving people who are old in hospitals if they don't need to be there. And two, the understanding was that you would only be infectious if you had symptoms. And so actually, sort of, there was the clinically, there was seen as no risk to patients going back into care homes because they weren't going to be a risk to others because they didn't have symptoms. Now, if you understood quite how prevalent asymptomatic transmission was at that point, maybe there would have been different decisions that were made at that. But that all comes to those early couple of weeks where we were sort of often trying to base decisions on what was coming out of China and you were kind of finding things out in newspapers before you're getting in actual briefings and so actually trying to make sure that you're really prioritising not just the ramping up testing or make sure you've got the diagnostics or the longer term things like a vaccine but actually understanding exactly what sort of virus you're facing because if something pops up in the next five ten years if it's something we've seen before we'll know what to do if it's not something we've seen before there are all sorts of decisions that are going to rely on us understanding as much as possible about Mm -hmm. it
2: By autumn, Nadim Zahawi had been appointed the Vaccines Minister. I spoke to him earlier in the year. It should be said before the resignation of Boris Johnson. I start by asking him what it was like to take on that role.
4: Actually, the Prime Minister initially called at the end of October to say, I want to do this. You're going to do it. I've just got to basically sort out the logistics of mm-hmm. getting you in place and announced and everything else. And so my team because I had a small private office team in BASE, immediately began sort of in the background engaging rapidly. And they've been brilliant, actually. And we grew very quickly, that team, to be able to deploy and do the job I needed to do. I guess the moment I arrived, Emmy Lawson, who is brilliant, was very much in the process of not designing what we needed to do, but actually beginning to think about deployment and, you know, how do you scale up? You'll remember at one of the press conferences, standing next to the Prime Minister, a brilliant man who was commander of 101 Logistics Brigade, Brigadier Phil, who said to me, he said, we're building the equivalent of a supermarket chain and we're going to grow it 20% every week. And I said, that's exactly what we're going to do. So we had, a you know, by then, quite high confidence mm-hmm. that, The Pfizer vaccine is going to get approved and the oxford AstraZeneca vaccine probably shortly after. And really, my job was, I, I went through the plans. I was convinced we had the right design. It was really just about giving ourselves the space and then communicating. You know, a lot of what we had to think about and do well is just... Building that confidence through communication, but also communicating to the front line. We had a massive mobilisation, the the greatest mobilisation in sort of peacetime with the volunteers. We had 80,000 vaccinated volunteers, 250,000 volunteers. We had the back end of Boots and Superdrug who gave us the distribution arms to be able to move a vaccine that needed to move at minus 70 degrees centigrade in the case of Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. It was a true collaboration of the best institutions in the public sector with the private sector. You know, I had, and I say it very proudly, and I've said it at the dispatch box many a time, you know, without the technology overlay that we had from Palantir, which were able to allow us to see forensically by postcode, by address, who'd been vaccinated, their age, their ethnicity, gender we wouldn't have been, I think, as capable and also allowed us to publish daily data.
2: So you mentioned peacetime, but many people have compared COVID-19 to wartime and to this being a military operation, which it sounds like from your experience in many ways, it was. Now, you came into the role when it sounds like all the evidence was pointing in the right direction. It seemed like the vaccines were going to come off. But if the prime minister was speaking to you a month before you officially took up their role, there must have been some hesitancy about the information you were going to get from the regulators. Were you prepared for the possibility that the vaccine approval in the program might not work out? And if so, what was the contingency plan?
4: We had to be. And you were never certain with any of this. And we saw it actually with other vaccines that didn't come through as quickly, whether it was the, the vaccine that GSK was developing one of the vaccines that Kate and the team had optioned Mm -hmm. obviously there were some delays again with the Novavax vaccine and with the Valneva vaccine any scientist who knows anything about vaccine development will know this is difficult Mm -hmm. it really is not easy and so we were never certain until we got the approval or within days that we knew it was definitely going to be happening the regulator is independent of government the mhra june rain is a brilliant leader of our regulator and i have to say there's been a complete sea change shift in attitude from big pharma about investing in the uk from when i was business and industry minister and sort of trying to convince them that brexit was going to be okay where they were really nervous because the european regulator was a the sort of the great 800 pound gorilla in,
2: yeah.
4: in Europe and we've got this tiny regulator called the MHRA, COVID comes along and now the MHRA is held up globally as the best way to do safe regulation that's agile yet always, you know, it's, maintaining safety. It's
2: fascinating because Europe was claiming that they were taking the more robust approach and was criticising Britain's regulatory strategy, saying that they were putting speed before public confidence and monitoring the efficacy and safety of the vaccines. They appear to have gotten it so wrong.
4: Well, that was one of the challenges I still remember, and I was shocked. You know, we had politicians in, in Europe saying, for example, they were actually, because we were looking at the regulator to make those decisions, MHRA, in terms of both the early vaccines, Oxford AstraZeneca and Pfizer-BioNTech, but you know, there are things like Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't work. I think it was President mm-hmm. Macron said at the time. I mean, he then reversed that decision, and I think... It,
2: a lot of European leaders were talking about the vaccine. His health minister
4: was vaccinated with the Oxford AstraZeneca yeah. vaccine, and I know both myself and Matt Hancock sent him a you know, message congratulating him for having <laughs> taking his vaccine. Nevertheless, it was, I think, a mistake for politicians to sort of begin to advocate or opine on the efficacy of a medicine or a vaccine. I think that is a role not for us. That's a role for you know the JCBI, the Joint Committee for Vaccination and Immunization, for our CMO, Chris Whitty, and for his deputy, Jonathan Van Tam. It's for the MHRA. And I think that was in many ways, we were fortunate in that we had institutions in place, like the JCVI, that like the MHRA, CMOs across the four nations, that worked really closely together. And actually those lines of demarcation were very clear, including Matt Hancock, quite rightly, asking the JCVI, because that's the right thing to do, to prioritize who should get the vaccine. A number of countries, when I reflect now, got it wrong because those lines were blurred. Mm -hmm. And then you had all sorts of pressures being put on politicians. And in some cases, they would then yield to that pressure. And I remember very clearly, you'll remember this, Keir Starmer saying, pause the vaccination programme and start vaccinating teachers. Now, because I was holding literally weekly, every Friday, a briefing session with all MPs, and in the early days, those early weeks in January, February, and, and th- pretty much actually throughout, we'd get five, 600 MPs on the call, on the Zoom call. And I'd have on my left metaphorically on screen, but the deputy chair of the JCVI, Professor Anthony Harnden, a brilliant man, and the clinical director from NHS England, Jonathan Leach, another brilliant clinician. And we would literally go through and brief them on everything that we were doing. This is once we were into full deployment. And therefore, I was able to sort of head off a sort of, I guess, pressure from Keir Starmer or Labour because his own MPs were briefed. And I was able to demonstrate to them, look, the system we've built, right, is vaccinating at speed and scale to the instructions of the JCVI, the prioritisation. The clear direct link was on age, was the greatest determinant of, of severity of infection. And I was able to say, look, the NHS knows the following. They know your, basically your name, your address, but of course your age and your gender and ethnicity. If I'm now to pause that system and ask the NHS to find out whether you're a teacher or a teaching assistant mm. or a support member of staff in the school to be prioritised, we would lose three slow months. Things down. We're Where it's much better to continue to focus. So it was those sort of lines of demarcation and responsibility that gave us, I think, that clarity and therefore the ability to carry the confidence of the of the nation
2: well let me uh, ask you program. let me ask you about efficacy and also ask you about holding the line which you've just mentioned first on efficacy there is now evidence that the mnra vaccines are waning over time no doubt the the vaccines are, are working miracles the boosters especially with variant but there is evidence that after 10 weeks they're starting to wane was this evidence starting to appear when you were vaccine minister? And to what extent do you think it changes the game in terms of how we combat COVID in the future?
4: So, all vaccines wane over time, not just the mRNA vaccines, the, the protein based vaccines do as well. And it's good to see the JCBI and Professor Wei Shen actually held a press briefing to demonstrate that in the over 65, the booster jab, which is the mRNA vaccine, which is either mm-hmm. Pfizer, BioNTech or Moderna, which offers the highest level of protection in terms of both antibodies and T-cells, will last four months at least in the over 65. So the older you are, the greater the waning of the vaccine protection. But it still lasts four months, which is good. Vaccines are going to get better with time, whether it's mRNA or protein vaccines. The real strength of mRNA vaccine is the ability to create the vaccine at speed. Because the moment you've got the, the sort of the genome sequence of a variant, I think you know, we're we're now down to about hundred days to get actually a vaccine mm-hmm. in a warehouse. And they will, I think, you know, over time get even better at that. Why is that important? Because you know at the moment we've got a vaccine that is a respiratory disease that is aerosol transmitted. Now they tend to be, if they are respiratory diseases, get more infectious and milder over time.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: We could end up one day with a, with a virus that is not necessarily, you know, behaves in the same way.
2: Why do you think there was such a big uptake in vaccines in the UK compared to neighbours such as France or friends across the Atlantic in the United States? Is that cultural? Is that historical? Is that part of the campaign that you were overseeing? How would you weigh up the combination?
4: I think it is a combination. I think Part of it, I think, is sort of cultural and a long history of science and discovery, not least in our brilliant universities. You know, you've got some colleges that go back, you know, a thousand years. Some of the, if you think of it per capita, you know, we are in the Premier League of producing, you know, Nobel Prize winners for science. So I think there is a absolutely a deep cultural appreciation and... Understanding that science really does matter and improves the lives and livelihoods of communities, which I think we share with the Israeli population, with the the Israeli people. Hence why I think they've seen high uptake as well. But but I do also want to pay tribute to my brilliant team. Why? Because we took a decision very early on with some great comms people in our team, not least. A brilliant man called Simon Enright, who we've now, he's left the NHS, but uh, is doing another big job for another institution, working with the Prince of Wales. But nevertheless, we took a decision very early on that we will always, always talk about the vaccine efficacy and vaccine positivity and share the data. You know, I was convinced, as was my Prime Minister, that... Data and transparency were our allies on this journey, and deliver the data whether it's through the NHS platforms, websites, through Jonathan Van Tam or Chris Whitty, or through the brilliant MHRA, who is independent of government, or the JCVI. Let the data speak for itself, you know, so people can see how the vaccines were developed. There were no corners cut. Do you remember after each vaccine was approved, we would have a press conference where you'd have you know, June Rain. Jonathan Van Tamel, Chris Whitty, Professor Wei Shen, taking people through the slides of how they went about making the decisions they made on the vaccines. I think that really did deliver for us because it allowed us to deal with vaccine hesitancy you know there are many people quite rightly who are asking questions say, how did you develop a vaccine so quickly mm-hmm. when we're told vaccines take seven to eight years well mm-hmm. the reason we did that is because money was not an object and when you develop a vaccine you know you go through phase one then you have to go and raise some more money and then get to phase two which is even more expensive raise more money and then phase three or have to go to your board each time for more funding money was not an issue
2: Yet even as Britain's domestic fight against Covid finally gave the government something to sing about, the pandemic continued to be a global problem. Most countries were not lucky enough to have the kind of vaccine rollout the UK had. Even now, less than a fifth of the population in low-income countries have been vaccinated. In stepped Russia and China, which tried to steal diplomatic points through supplying poorer countries with the Sputnik and Sinovac vaccines. And the World Health Organization had its own scheme, COVAX, to distribute vaccines globally. But its 2 billion vaccines was nowhere near enough to fully vaccinate the world's population. For its part, the UK has pledged only 100 million doses, 40 million of which have still not been donated by March this year. Even now, the UK is fighting against waiving the patent rights of COVID-19 vaccines at the World Trade Organization against the efforts of South Africa and India to allow global production. When asked, Nadeem Zahawi defended the British record.
4: Well, let's sort of take this through the history of what we did. If you go back to the inception of the vaccines Task Force under the great Kate Bingham, the Prime Minister set them two targets. Right? One... Is scour the world, audit the teams, come back to me and tell me who we should be contracting with to bring the vaccines to the UK as a priority, but an equal priority he set for the vaccine task force, and this is all minuted and, and there for people to see that they must also think about how we help the rest of the world, mm-hmm. all the way back to the inception of you know when the pandemic first hit, and it'll come out all in, I'm sure in the inquiry as well. And that was a really important instruction from Boris Johnson. Why? And I'm very proud of this, by the way. When we brought together the Oxford team with AstraZeneca, we were absolutely instrumental, as were the board of AstraZeneca, that we would deliver the vaccine, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, to the world for free, as in no profit. So at cost, effectively. Right? Why? Because whilst there's a pandemic in the world, both AstraZeneca's board, but with the government's determination, it was the right thing to do. We always need to do more, right? Which is why at the same time, the Prime Minister took the decision to give COVAX, I think it was 540 plus million pounds to be able to acquire other vaccines as well. And we went further. We pledged 100 million doses from our own, orders effectively in manufacturing you now we will by this year be one of the largest manufacturers in the world for vaccines because we made investment in oxfordshire and in braintree and other parts of the country in vaccine manufacture at scale we should be producing somewhere between 700 and 900 million doses a year
2: Professor Andrew Puller, chief investigator for the clinical trials of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, has been one of the leading scientists arguing for a more equitable sharing of vaccines. I started by asking him about whether global supply chains was something he thought about when they designed the vaccine. For example, the Oxford-AstraZeneca jab's ability to be stored at fridge temperature.
0: Well, a deliberate part of the design is for distribution is to be able to store at four degrees, because that is what the infrastructure globally is. distribution of vaccines and so that you need to put in more infrastructure for storage at low temperatures. But really the critical bit of our vision for global distribution was around the not-for-profit nature of our vaccine because if you have a for-profit vaccine then inevitably you try to sell to where you can make the most money and that is high-income countries and to lower risk individuals before you go to lower middle-income countries where you'll make less money so by going not for profit distribution uh, was not uh, directed purely to high-income countries but actually was global and that's how we've ended up with three billion doses distributed in 187 countries so more countries than than any other vaccine and uh, as a result of that there's been enormous impact from from that um, global distribution i think the second thing for for trying to have more equitable distribution was to have very distributed manufacturing, um, so AstraZeneca um, set up more than twenty manufacturing sites around the world, which then to some extent uh, protects against nationalism in vaccines and also uh, means that efforts to have the supply chain more um, local protects against the uh, disruption of, of global supply chains uh, to, to some extent and that, that I think was really important in getting that, that wide distribution. <laughs>
2: Andrew, you cited that 3 billion jab figure, which, uh, you know, on the surface seems like a fantastic headline. But I know that you have been critical in the past about how much the wealthy West has done for the rest of the world when it comes to vaccine distribution. How would you currently rate the performance of Britain, but also in the World Health Organization's COVAX scheme?
0: Well, uh, well the total number of doses across all the vaccines is about 12 billion that have been distributed And really, I think in the the critical point, as I said before, was that to distribute early. The vaccines only have a benefit if you vaccinate someone before they're dead. And so the critical part was to get distribution early in 2021. And there were great commitments from the G7 for providing more doses, more equitably. The problem is those have all come rather late. So distribution in 2022, which is where a lot of the efforts have focused, um, is really after there's been a huge spread around the world of the virus. And so we've missed the boat in many countries by not distributing early more equitably. I I think today there's no supply problem and so countries that want access to vaccines don't have difficulty getting them. But it was earlier in, in the pandemic that we really needed to be much more equitable in in our distribution and I think it's reasonable to criticise the high-income countries for not having that that vision that there was through WHO and, and COVAX in early 2021.
2: This gets into difficult trade-offs and I'm interested in your perspective on this. If we go back to 2021, countries like the UK were already talking about booster shots for everybody, for the young and healthy and the older and more vulnerable groups when they were dishing out the first round of vaccines. Do you think that conversation around boosters and the public policy around them in countries like the UK overlooked the needs of other countries, which didn't even have access to their first round of vaccines?
0: Well, if you look at the the global number of individuals who are in those vulnerable groups, so if you took, for example, the age of 65 as the cutoff, globally that is a relatively small number of individuals uh, compared with the huge number of younger people that there are, because of course most of the world lives in lower-middle-income countries. So I think with a a little bit of thought about distribution uh, we could have managed a lot of the uh, booster programmes but still managed to capture those at greatest risk uh, ahead Mm -hmm. in the low middle income countries. So I do think there was some distraction there by going very rapidly to younger and younger individuals where we actually only needed to slice off a small proportion of the total global supply to be more equitable in our distribution um, at that earlier stage. So I actually don't think it would have made such a big difference uh, to, the, uh, to the global distribution. COVAX, I think has uh, actually done quite a good job in distributing the most enormous number of doses um, to low and middle income countries. The problem they've had is they weren't getting enough doses supplied to them to distribute. So uh, really today, they, I mean, they, they have plenty, but they really didn't when they needed them most in 2021
2: looking back what do you think the uk should have done differently or could have done slightly better or significantly better when it came to global distribution
0: well i uh, think that taking a leadership role in trying to make sure that the distribution of vaccines was more equitable and particularly focused at that older adult population in in low-middle income countries would have been i would have really transformed the global picture uh, from The G7 decision to donate vaccines in June of 2021 until the end of the year, another million people died because very few of those doses were actually distributed. So it really does show that the decision making or the thinking was there, but the delivery um, from the G7 wasn't there. So it, it it is something where there's a really difficult balance between domestic political imperatives to protect the population as much as possible. Locally, uh, with really the, uh, the biggest impact that can be had at a global scale. And I really do think that uh, the governments need to think about how we can do better in the future to protect populations globally to have the biggest benefit public health
2: Mm. my last question for you andrew is to what extent global distribution is still a live question here in the uk the vast majority of adults are vaccinated and many people are back to living their lives without covid as a day-to-day thought for some people the pandemic feels like a part of the past but that simply isn't true in other countries would you say it's too soon to be easing off the global distribution efforts
0: Well, as I said earlier, I don't think global distribution today is a problem in terms of the supply. Uh, There is a problem in some countries with distribution because of the infrastructure and the health systems to be able to distribute the vaccines and and to use them. Uh, But in countries that have been open, uh, there's been so much spread of the virus now that many of those individuals who were going to get seriously ill or die have already uh, met the virus And so the overall risk, and we can see this in the dramatic fall in in global mortality figures, the absolute risk in most countries now is extremely low. And that that does take the pressure off in those countries for for further distribution. Most of the gain in preventing death is the first and the second dose. And so uh, those countries that have not been able to even get first doses in that have met the virus, the additional benefits of vaccine now on top of that are relatively smaller than they would have been previously. The exception are those countries that have pursued a zero COVID policy where the pandemic hasn't had its opportunity to start. And we've seen, for example, the outbreaks in China where there's been a a zero COVID policy pursued, but there are still not enough people in the population vaccinated. And so vaccines still do have a role in situations where people have been neither vaccinated nor have met the virus. In other settings around the world, boosters can help those with other health conditions stay well and stay out of hospital. But in preventing death in the general population, the additional doses are much less impactful than they were um, before people had been vaccinated at all.
2: And speaking of the future, what about the lessons learned from this pandemic? The COVID inquiry in the UK has just begun. And the blame game has started with Rishi Sunak speaking to The Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson, about his efforts to campaign against a sage supremacy within the government. Here's Jamie again. I asked him what he made of the criticisms of the government's response, especially on things like PPE procurement.
3: So it's interesting looking back on it and when you're being on the inside of things and you're sort of being barred with criticism from everywhere and thinking, are we we getting it wrong? Are we doing it really badly? and then getting on the G7 calls we used to have. So we used to have a weekly call with the health ministers from all the other G7 nations. And it was a really strange experience because you'd be on this call and you'd hear the Germans saying, oh, yeah, we're having real PPE problems. We've got doctors protesting, like, naked because they can't get PPE. And then you'd have the Spanish saying, we've got no access to tests. We don't know what to do on tests. And essentially, a lot of these problems we'd sort of be facing in the UK, realising actually in a global pandemic when you're facing global scarcity for Resources like PPE, for example, you're going to be facing these sorts of problems. I think you Essentially, you have to take a decision to live in the world as it is, not as you'd like it to be, and do everything you can to affect that. So, for example, on PPE, essentially, when you're getting calls from doctors saying we're worried we're going to run out of PPE, we need to make sure we've got as much PPE. Looking at what you can be doing on the procurement system and saying, right, let's just buy as much as we possibly can, because I'm sure at some point people attack us and say we should have taken much longer on procurement rules. But actually, if the alternative is doctors and nurses running out of PPE and people dying because they don't have PPE, actually, that's sort of the right decision to take. And on things like testing, it's amazing now how used we've got to to test at a, the at a touch of a button. What touch of a button? Click of a phone, or you can kind of literally kind of order it over, it will be there the next I'm day. I'm sure there are buttons and Yeah, there'll, there'll be buttons somewhere. <laughs> In those early days, sort of, we had access to do about, I think it was firstly 50 tests a day, then it was scaled up to 200 tests a day. I mean, it was tiny. And so obviously you have to have a prioritisation of working out actually who do you need to be getting tests to, who are the most vulnerable, and also working out what do you want to be doing to be boosting your testing capacity. I think if we'd have had the capacity to test a million people a day from the very start of the pandemic, that would have been fantastic. But we didn't, and we had to do everything we could to sort of build up that capacity and get to a point where we could actually deliver that. So I think a lot of the criticisms are unjustified. I think they're criticisms of a place where we were, where... Yeah, they were a difficult situation for us. And I think the push and the sense for ministers and officials was, look, we'd want to be in a different place we are, but the focus should be on getting to where we need to be.
2: And what about the lessons learned then? Here's Isabel Hardman, our assistant editor, whose upcoming book is a history of the National Health Service.
1: I think diagnostics is really interesting because something that Matt Hancock was uh, talking about at at one stage in the sort of middle of testing going well, tracing going less well, but the testing going well, was that the UK was now becoming a sort of diagnostics superpower. I can't quite remember the language he used, but something along those lines. I'm not sure that the diagnostics infrastructure has been made permanent in the way that Hancock would have liked. Uh, A lot of it seemed to involve contracts with companies who've now sort of moved on to doing other things so it means that when we have the next pandemic and it is a question of when you don't have that infrastructure just ready to go and that's possibly something that's worth considering i think another really big lesson is about social care you know deaths in care homes but also the fact that this now highly controversial often poorly reported policy of the discharge into care homes from hospitals at the start of the pandemic, uh, that's had court cases around it, that there were that many patients who were able to be discharged because they were medically fit for discharge, which is the, the NHS term for what we popularly know as bed blockers, people who could go home but are waiting for a care package that will enable a safe discharge. And what happened at that point, as well as all the other decisions that were made around that, was that the Treasury provided... Uh, funding for to enable discharge but it's now gone back to the system before where you have doctors who are desperate to move a medically fit for discharge patient out of a out of a bed out of a ward into the community the local authority responsible that has a legal obligation for providing that care package can't afford it doesn't do it cancels it tries to do it it falls through that patient just sits there possibly getting a hospital acquired infection being in hospital's not pleasant they don't want to be there I was talking to one patient who'd been recovering in hospital from an operation recently who was told by one of the doctors, you are costing us £750 a night every time you stay here, even though he couldn't go home because his local authority had let him down. And I think I just don't see that lesson being learnt about the discharge. And I know that's slightly separate to the lessons about infection control and so on. But actually, we have this social care system that means that people are in hospital who shouldn't be. And, and that's never OK, whether it's in a pandemic when you need to free up capacity or whether it's now when, oh, you still need to free up capacity because the NHS always runs hot.
2: So here we are, two and a half years on from the beginning of the pandemic in the UK. All mandatory COVID restrictions are gone. We are two vaccines and one booster down. And the inquiry has begun. Throughout the global public health response, as we've heard today, the UK has been a leader. But at times, it's arguably the case it could have done more. So perhaps next time, we'll be a little bit smarter and a little bit fairer. Thanks to all my guests on this episode, Jamie Najoka Goodwin, Nadim Zahawi, Sir Andrew Pollard, and Isabel Hardman. And thanks again, too, to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for kindly sponsoring this episode.